Welcome to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast, all about real estate investing in the Calgary market. And now your host, Corey Peckford. Hey guys, today's format is a little different than previous shows. On today's show, I'm the one being interviewed by Nelda Schulte. This is on her YouTube channel, Alberta Landlords Watch. I would highly recommend following Nelda's show. Nelda has expert knowledge in the Landlord Tenancy Act. She helps landlords navigate all the challenges that come from being a landlord. Having someone like Nelda in your corner can save you thousands of dollars and a whole lot of stress on your real estate journey. She's also written a book, The Canadian Landlord Handbook. So this show was recorded a little over a month ago, and it covers many of the construction changes that have happened through the years, plus some costly things to watch out for if you're buying a home. For those of you who do not know my background, before becoming a real estate agent, I completed two Red Seal trades, one of them as an electrician, plus I became a certified master home inspector after performing a thousand home inspections. That's back when I owned a company. If you're enjoying the show, it'd be greatly appreciated if you could subscribe and leave a five-star review. This will help the show continue to grow. Welcome to Alberta Landlords Watch. My name is Nelda Schulte. And I'm joined today by our wonderful guest, Corey Peckford. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Today is going to be pushing our pleasure points because normally we deal with a lot of painful things, you know, problems with landlords, tenants, non-payment, all the fun stuff. And today we're going to talk about kind of preemptive things that you can do. Corey is really a great guest. He has a really fantastic background. He has worked in the trades. He has a home inspection business, had house. You still have it? I do. My employee's taking it over, though, or has okay. taken it over. Yeah, you bet. Okay. And he's also a realtor, and he's an investor. So, I mean, this is like a quadruple threat kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to be. <laughs> and the reason I do this show is because when I started out, when I bought my first couple properties, like, I may as well have just flushed my money down the toilet because I made so many mistakes. And so I wanted to start NeldaSchulte.com, Alberta Landlord's Watch, to help other people not step in the landmines that I stepped in. Because there really are a lot. Real estate mistakes are very expensive, and they're also legal repercussions. So that's why you don't want to get into a pickle in real estate, and that's why I do the show. And that's why I have my website, which is neldaschulte.com, which is suspiciously my first and my last name, exactly like it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I also offer a lot of resources on my website. A lot of them are free, like blog articles. I have some free courses some free little webinars and seminars, and then I have paid courses that you can take too. And I also have this great book, Amazing. Canadian Landlord's Handbook that I wrote. It was published in October, and that tells you everything you need to know about being a landlord in Canada. How, how long were you working on the book for before you published it? <laughs> I tell people 18 years because I've been a property investor for 18 years. And, uh, you know, I have all these stories as we all do, right? And that's one thing we love to do is when property investors and landlords get together, they love to tell tales from the trenches. So yeah, yeah. so I'm not gonna talk about me anymore. I'd like to talk about you. So tonight's topic is the home building process. And Corey, you know, you really couldn't get a better expert than Corey. I mean, Corey could build your home, inspect your home and sell your home. <laughs> yeah. well, I, can't, I can't do everything, but I can do a lot of things, yeah. <laughs> and he carries luggage, I've heard. <laughs> and yes, that's right, exactly. <laughs> okay, so Corey, what inspired you to start a home inspection company? Uh, it's a bit of a story. I'll try to just move quickly through it, but it does take, it could probably be a show of its own. Mm -hmm. So I spent a lot of my career in oil and gas and that's where I did my electrical trade and I did a, what's called an instrumentation trade. So then I guess when I look back, I always think I like, I like to stack 
my skills. So then as soon as I was done the electrical trade, I thought, okay, what's next? And instrumentation was a natural progression. It was just open to create more opportunities for me in industry. It's more technical. So I ended up doing that trade as well. That took another four years of uh, schooling to get through. And then when I was done that, I was working in oil and gas and working for a large pipeline company. By the way, this is this is Gil, who's just joined us on the bottom. Gil's joining us from BC. So you were talking about being an instrumentation and stacking your skills. Yeah. So I just kind of given a quick overview of how I got into starting a home inspection company. So I was in oil and gas, did electrical trade, and then did an instrumentation trade. Ended up in a downtown in a corporate job in the control room. It was good, but it was night shifts and I was I had young kids at the time, so I needed a change. And I worked on houses on the side for years doing renos and things to save money, doing my own landscaping, decks, whatever needed to be done, basements. So I had those skills already. Ended up in a desk job and it just started to suck the life out of me. I just couldn't do it. We did this one team build. I remember like I had this epiphany moment. They brought us all to this firefighter hall and they said, okay, you're a firefighter for the day. And I loved it. I loved running the stairs and crawling through stuff. And I'm like, and it just kind of made me realize that I'm not cut out to sit there and look at spreadsheets all day long. And on top of that, there was kind of a personal crisis with a couple of deaths in my family and oh, uh, a divorce, all this kind of unraveled. And I'm like, I need out. I have to get out of this job. And I just resigned because of my skills as a tradesman. Home inspection was a natural progression. I went into that, started a company got my certification as a master home inspector after doing a thousand home inspections and then wow. pass that. Yeah, I pass that to my employee and now I do real estate full-time as a realtor. So I just try to stack my learning and my skills and then bring extra value now as a real estate agent. That's a brilliant idea. I also think it's, you know, it's kind of interesting. A lot of the people that I talk to usually do have some sort of a personal crisis. So pain is, seems to be a great motivator to yeah. kind of and do something else or something better or something more than we thought we could be doing should be doing you know something that kicks us out of the status quo that makes us do something above and beyond what we thought we were capable of yeah 100 i definitely had the pension plan i had you know the four weeks vacation i had benefits i had everything basically the golden handcuffs i could have just stayed and retired yes. and i just couldn't do it i was just burning out in a job that just didn't fulfill me so yeah, well, if it sucks the life out of you, then it's not the kind of thing for you. Yeah, exactly. But you do like running up and downstairs, putting out fires, <laughs> and right. rescuing kittens out of trees. So that is yeah. very admirable, Corey. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was like, man, I should have been a firefighter because that would have been a good good thing for me, right? I very popular with the ladies. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember this one cop telling me, he says, I don't understand why people always like firefighters over cops. I'm like, they don't give you tickets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty <laughs> obvious. Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. As a firefighter, a lot of firefighters I know do real estate on the side because they spend a fair bit of time not fighting fires as well. Yeah, for sure they do. And then you have the shifts are kind of stacked together, so they get you know like basically forty eight hours working nonstop and then like four days off kind of thing where they, you know, so they really get a lot of time off if if they're in a quiet fire hall anyway. Yeah. Well, you're hoping. Yeah. So how difficult was it to start a home inspection company from scratch? It was stressful for sure. I went from my corporate world job to basically having a you know cold call realtors and get in front of people and and then do my own marketing and basically everything that comes with trying to start a business, right? And then the other thing I found was different because when I did the two trades, you always had a journeyman that would mentor you through your apprenticeship, right? Whereas as a home inspector, you take the certification you do one mock inspection and then you're basically, they sign off and they say, you are a licensed home inspector. Oh, well. And then you're, unless you work with a company, there's really no ongoing mentorship. So then 
you end up naturally making some mistakes or you overlook stuff and you're just like, you never make the same mistake twice. You learn from it. And that way it was more difficult, I think, as opposed to when I compare it to doing the two trades prior to that, because I was on my own and the learning curve was for me to basically just figure out as I went. Well, yeah, that's actually a good point that mentoring really cuts back on your mistake time, right? Yeah. Hundred percent. So when I hired my employee, he's a tradesman as well. Every home inspection, I would show him. I say, "Look, this is something that at one point either I missed, or this is something I picked up on, or maybe it almost caught me." And I would show him like everything. I just pour all the information into him as much as I could, so he's just going to be more successful out of the gate right away, right? Yeah, much less stressful for both of you. Yeah. So then you thought, okay, well, that wasn't stressful enough. I want to be a realtor and really do a lot of cold calls. So how can you end up becoming a realtor? I just felt like I do enjoy the physical part, but then I think my long-term vision was to get my real estate license, but I just didn't feel like it was, because it takes even more time to get momentum as a realtor. And being, uh, I was divorced, so I didn't have a partner to financially help me. So I felt like, so if I do an inspection today, I get paid tonight kind of thing, right? Or, or they don't get the report. Whereas a realtor, you could be working on a deal with a client for six weeks, maybe eight weeks, finally close, and they, or maybe longer sometimes, and then you won't get paid for maybe six mm-hmm. to eight weeks kind of thing, right? Yeah. So That's a long time. Uh, you, you have to have a bit of a buffer or a runway to do it. like, Or maybe if you're lucky and you got someone like a parent or somebody that can bring you on board and give you leads and all that stuff. And for me, it was just, I just knew I needed to uh, have enough of a runway to do it. And once I got my master's certification as a home inspector, I kind of felt like, okay, there's my third trade. I've completed my trade. And, you know, if I continue to do it, I would continue to learn more. But mm-hmm. I just wanted to build now and just kind of move into kind of stacking the skills again and go into real estate. And that's kind of how I ended up. Well, that's really valuable because I just think of what you can offer people from, you know, if somebody shows someone a house, they could ask you any question about it and you'd be able to answer it or at least guide them in the right direction if you didn't know specifically everything yep. about that. That's right. And I have good trades contacts in Calgary. So like a lot of times, if I don't know a number or if I'm not sure, generally I could be, I just, I'm on my phone, I'm texting right away. I'm like, or I send a picture. So because I'm an electrician, I'm not as up to date on the most current code, right? I can go fix electrical problems. I could go into a house and change your electrical stuff. But if you ask me, okay, what did the code book change this year? Unless it's significant, I'm not going to yeah. probably well, know. Yeah, why would you? You're not studying it all the time right now. That's right. So then I have electrician friends that own their own businesses, and I just send them a text. I'm like, what's the code rule say on this? And then I'll get, you know, pretty fast response or plumbers or that kind of thing, right? So that way I'm not, I'm informed and I'm not giving out the wrong information. Yep. That really yeah. helps. Yeah, I, I <laughs> met up with a friend of mine last weekend, and she said she never goes downstairs very often in her house. And she went downstairs and she said there was water all over the stairs. They tracked it down to the uh, leaking hot water tank. And she said, did you know you're supposed to empty your hot water tank once a year? I said, yep. <laughs> yeah. I said, and I, I wrote that in my book. I thought I'd put that in here under maintenance. I said, it's something you have to do or sign up with. I've got a plumbing service that comes in and services it once a year. So I don't have all the sediment buildup. But she yeah. didn't know that. And I was really surprised because she's been owning homes much longer than I have. So. Yeah. A lot of people don't know that. And then there's an anode rod that goes in the top and it's good for about six years. So if it has a 12-year warranty, it has two anode rods to get them through that 12-year time period, right? All the things you pick up. And we picked this up when Gil and I, Gil Donkersgood, who's down below here, and I had a property management business. You're always looking at everything all the time. So one of the first things we started looking at after we've been in the business for a little while is we started looking at the age of people's hot water tanks. 
and to see when was the last time that they serviced their furnace because some people never service their furnace never yeah a lot of people don't know they have to and they're quite surprised when they find out that it actually extends the life of this stuff by quite substantially it's well worth the money for sure and then what we found like as an inspector we on the high efficiency furnaces a common problem is because they make condensation naturally as a byproduct and if any of the seals are leaking that water, that moisture is just dripping inside the cabinet, right? And then, so the inspector comes along and if the homeowner hasn't opened up the door in five years, it could just be full of rust. And then, you know, the the components are getting, you know, deteriorating and it's just, it's basically really shortening the life expectancy of the furnace, right? Whereas open it up, change the filters and have a look visual inspection as a minimum, I think is a great idea. So what are the big dollar items to look out for when you're purchasing a home? It depends on the year of the property. If it was an older property, I would be looking at have the windows been replaced? You know, are they the old wood windows, depending on the year, or maybe aluminum sliders? So windows can be, as you guys I'm sure know, could be 15, 20,000. It could be more depending on the size of them, right? Yeah. So like the roof condition for sure is another big one. The price of roof replacements, like everything else has gone up, just like our gas prices. So, you know, a roof, I think used to be five, $6,000. Now we're looking at eight, $10,000 to get a roof done. Furnace, again, that's another one. So if the furnace is old, uh, that could be, you know, $6,000 or more. So those are all kind of good ones to note that when you look at a property as you walk through it. I think it depends on the, what the person's expectations are and what their plan is for the property. But as you walk through the property, that's what I'd be gauging is, you know, if it's from the 80s and original and, and are they going to replace the flooring and is the kitchen going to be updated in the bathroom? So those all cost money. Exterior wise, I think the grading and the foundation and if there's any sort of retaining walls, I've seen some retaining walls where I feel like I would just move to the next property. I would not buy that property. There's too much risk, but yeah, a beautiful retaining wall in your backyard that starts to lean and maybe the contractor didn't build it quite right or it's settled or something. If the contractors can't get in with their machines, the price just goes through the roof. Yeah, I would not touch personally or for my clients. I mean, maybe it's the right property. They love everything about it. And then it's just, if it has a retaining wall like that, I would get at least three contractor quotes to see what you're dealing with, to see, okay, you know, maybe it's starting to lean. What is it going to mean five, 10 years from now? Is that a $50,000 retaining wall? Or, you know, I've seen quotes over $80,000 for retaining wall repairs. You know, and that's something that I've never heard any realtors talk about ever. They've never talked about retaining walls. And that can lead to leaks in your foundation, can't it? Is that why you're... Depend on the grading, it can. But, you know, if it's the elevation, if you're holding back dirt and it's encroaching on your neighbor's property, I've seen it where it starts to lean and they had a structure, kind of like a archway. And then as the retaining wall leaned, it pushed the archway and started to force and actually start to do damage on the neighbor's house where the... Yeah, so that force was just being transferred all the way like from the retaining wall into another person's house. And it's going on, it's very slow and the, the homeowners aren't, you know, noticing. And then over time you show up and it's like, oh, wow, you know, it's caused damage to the property, to the house, to the archway. And I think the other one, the big one is the sewer line. I guess we're going to oh, yeah. talk about that in a little bit, right? But the sewer yeah. line is another one that you don't want to leave that unknown as the condition of that sewer line. Um, no. And if you have an older home, I think, well, I mean, this is something I've learned through trial and error is that if you're buying an older home, I would definitely get the pipes scoped out i would have yep. a city take their little pipe yep. their fiber optics tube and go down and take a look at it and see if there are tree roots growing in which there almost inevitably are and or if there are any broken pipes along yep. the way because if you're looking at a house that's older than i don't know 15 20 years old 
tree roots grow in if it's in a treat area. So yep. yeah. So anyway, you mentioned a couple of things about wood foundations here. Of course, that means some really good talking points. And <laughs> I've never heard of wood foundations for housing. Well, maybe once before. Like, what is it, and is that common? And it's not super common. I want to say they still do build them some places. I think in like Saskatchewan, depending on the location. Like Strathmore has them. They have them right in Calgary too. I've seen them in uh, Auburn Bay area, or actually it was it was Edgemont. Beautiful house, and you kind of wonder, okay, why isn't this property selling, or why is it selling under market value? And I was actually showing a client this when I wasn't doing the inspection, and I know what they look like and the signs of them. But sure enough, I'm going to get to the lockbox. I look wood foundation, and in my opinion on them. My personal opinion, I wouldn't buy one, to be honest with you, unless the numbers make really good sense. And you've had, I guess, an assessment. A home inspector is more of a generalist. So even for myself, having mm -hmm. a master home, let's say I would walk around the property, evaluate the grading, see what the downspouts are doing, how much moisture has been building up beside the wood foundation, and is there any deterioration evident? But if there's no visual signs, you don't know what's going on underneath the dirt. And if you do run into problems down the road, they can be super expensive. Like we're talking way more expensive than a sewer line issue. So generally those houses don't sell, they can be a bit harder to finance and they always sell under market value because there's less buyers willing to take on right. that extra risk. Yeah. There's supposed to be an engineering certification that would be passed on. People do buy them, right? Because they're getting basically into maybe a neighborhood or a location cheaper than they otherwise would. Maybe in that situation I would too, if it was like, oh, this is amazing property and I'm getting it at a really good deal. And I felt like I couldn't visually see any issues Then maybe I would take the risk too. But I, I would prefer if the neighbor's house has concrete, I would just prefer to buy the neighbor's house and not have that, <laughs> you know, the situations where maybe this house is backs onto a lake and it's like, there's a reason why you want that location. And the other thing is a lot of times when you see wood foundations, they're generally, there's not a lot of grading against them. It's kind of almost like a bi-level where, you know, where they sit out of the ground higher, a wood foundation cannot have that lateral pressure against it, right? Cinder block is similar. Like you can't have that load from soil, especially when it, if that soil is wet, pushing against the foundation wall if it's a wood. So they're always above, higher above the grading. And the reason why they became popular was in remote locations, it was harder to get concrete to the, some of these areas and cheaper. It's pressure treated wood and timbers. So there is a reason for them. And I think they can last a long time, but you really got to just, do your due diligence. I wouldn't move forward quickly on one and not, you know, have a full understanding. I'm going to ask you two questions. I want the nutshell version. Radon and asbestos. What the about nutshell version? What should <laughs> so, look out for for radon? Because I mean, it was a big scare. Yeah, no, they say it's a second leading cause of lung cancer, right? Lung cancer, yeah. And I don't know how accurate this is. And I so for my company, I was looking at okay, I want to get the commercial radon testing equipment and offer that as a service. And then when I looked into it, this was several years ago, the studies were coming out and they're saying these digital testers weren't accurate as, you know, you can buy like almost like a little charcoal tester. You have to leave it for 90 days and then you send it to right. a lab. So the studies that were coming out were saying that's basically the only thing that's accurate. Whereas these kind of like spot tests, you know, testers aren't accurate enough to tell you if you do have high levels of radon. So I just stayed away from it. I thought, well, why buy these commercial machines if I can't say with certainty, and then the minimum air sample test for those was 48 hours to a week kind of thing to get a reasonably accurate reading. So I think it's a good idea to have your home tested. Generally, it's not something in a real estate transaction that's going to be something that it's too long of a time to test, right? Sometimes people think, okay, older houses, it's old, it's probably going to have radon. But actually, old houses are leakier. Yeah, and, that's correct. And, yeah. 
and radon levels can be lower, whereas you get into uh, tighter new build and your radon levels could actually be a bit higher because yeah. everything's you, so airtight. You, you can go online and see what the radon levels are for your neighborhood and for your... Yeah, because radon is a localized thing, right? So if you're in a an area that isn't considered high risk for radon, wouldn't that be... Uh, a reasonable assumption? From my understanding, well, Alberta is known to have high radon, right? My understanding is it varies. It's almost like the sewer line could be different from one neighbor to the next, and the radon level could be different from one neighbor to the next as well. Because maybe because the, the type of soil that's deeper down, like is just slightly different, or maybe there's some fault line that's moving through, and, and then you're just getting extra radon coming through. And then the other thing is your slab in your basement, if it has cracks in it, some yeah. cracks there, you know, that could also be bringing some radon in too, right? So I think it's a good idea for peace of mind to have them test it, have your home test it and see where it is, but do the long extended tests. I think it's a bit gimmicky, these short tests. Companies that are doing those tests, they have incentive to basically put in a remediation system for you because they're going to make money. I'd be maybe a bit more independent, just yeah. buy the, go to Amazon, buy the, buy the kit, put it in the house for you know at least 90 days and then send it away and see what it says. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not going to cost you a lot of money. Okay. That's right. How yeah. prevalent is asbestos in older homes? So the regulations got stricter in the 80s. So about by mid-80s, they started to, you know, really heavily regulate and, and remove any sort of asbestos products in houses. I guess all the way to the 80s, it could be in the mud. It could be, you know, when you do the drywalling, it could be in your mud. It could be also be in your stipple on your ceiling. When you get into, say, 50s, 60s, there's a, instead of the typical 12 by 12 tile, there's a what's called, it's a 9 by 9 tile. So once you see it, you look at it, you're like, oh, yeah, that likely has asbestos because it's that's a 9 by 9 kind of glued on tile that you'll see in some of these older like 70s houses. And then, so the duct working, instead of using like the metal tape they use today, there was a tape they would put to help seal the duct work. And that also was known to have asbestos. Oh boy. Yeah. And then the other one was vermiculite. As an inspector, I didn't see it a lot in the 70s and 80s houses. And I think it's because most homeowners had it removed. So it, the, the actual, the government in the early 80s, they were given a grant so basically they could put vermiculite. It was like, oh, this stuff's amazing. You know, it's fire resistant, all these things, right? And has high R value. So they were putting this vermiculite in the attic spaces. The government was kind of giving an incentive to people. And then they realized that people were dying in these facilities oh. where they were mining it because of the asbestos. Yeah, boy. Uh, so then the government went circled back and basically had a program to basically have it removed. But as an inspector, most times I've seen it is early 50s. It's almost like those homeowners just didn't worry about it. They're like, my installation's been here for this long. I'm not worrying about it. But I've rarely ever seen it like 70s, 80s. But yet it was put in thousands and thousands of homes in that era too. Wow. How about linoleum? Yeah, it can be in a linoleum too, as well, depending on the product. Yeah. Kind of like the 9 by 9 tile, right? Yeah. Those are the ones off the top of my head as an inspector, if you're walking through or, you know, a home. And then obviously you can get samples done. So if you're going to do, you know, a full renovation on a 60s, 70s, 80s house, it's a good idea to have someone come in, take those samples, send them to the lab and find out what you have, right? Like I've done rentals on those types of homes. I've just always used precautions. So I would use like a HEPA filter on my vacuum. I would put poly in. I would wear my respirator, you know, P90 type mask. And then I would always just be very precautious myself. I wouldn't just swing a hammer and let dust fly everywhere and breathe it all in kind of thing. Probably a good idea, Corey. That's why you're here with us today. So I'm going to let Bill take over and ask you a few more questions. Okay. So one of the questions we have here is uh, Orangeburg pipe. And I have to be honest, I don't even know what that is. What is that? So actually, we kind of touched on a little bit about the sewer lines, right? A lot of these products, like we haven't talked about Poly B yet. We'll probably talk about it. But 
so a lot of these products, there was always a reason. So with Orangeburg, what happened was it was just after the Second World War. The nations all were using the metal for the materials needed for the war. So metal became very expensive. So then they came up with a product called Orangeburg. And it was basically like a tar paper. And it was a bitumen tar paper that's infused with like tar and asbestos. And think of it like that, obviously stronger, but just, you know, like you ever taken like a roll from Christmas thing. And it's a really hard cardboard roll. It's kind of like that, but it's just been infused. And so they decided to use that for the sewer lines. Cancer cocktail. Yeah, that's right. And what I find interesting is, at least in Calgary, some of the homes I've seen, so they'll have cast iron in the house, right? So for the stack and everything. So you, you might assume, oh, it's supposed to be cast iron all the way out. But it, they went, basically the builder would do cast iron to about two feet out of the property. Then for the remaining run on the property line, they went to Orangeburg to save some money. But then the city on their end, never used it. I guess they wanted a product that they knew would last longer and wouldn't have so many issues. So that where the city ties in, you would never have Orangeburg. And that's where like, so in Calgary, I lived in Westgate for quite a while. I rented a, an older house there. And my house had cast iron, which was still in good shape, but you could go a neighbor over and they may have clay. The builder may have decided, okay, I want to use clay. I'll spend a bit more money than I would pay on Orangeburg, but I'm not going to put in cast iron because it's too expensive. So they may have clay. And then with clay, there were short runs, maybe about four feet. And then there's a kind of like a connection they would do. But those connections tend to deteriorate over time. And that's where the roots really get in on a clay pipe. But the clay can last. I mean, it's, you know, it's in Europe and it's hundreds of years old, right? But the joints can have, you know, like gaps and stuff in it. So Orangeburg is basically, if the house has Orangeburg, it should be replaced. There's no, you know, oh, I think I'll get another five years out of this. I had a client just recently buy in Ross Carrick. And we had an inspection company come in and their camera basically went in. It wasn't a very good quality camera. So it was very hard to tell what they were looking at. And they said, basically, there's an obstruction. I'm not sure what it is. Probably should be cleaned. Then I sent another company in with a better camera. And as soon as I saw it, I knew it was Orangeburg and it was destroyed. It was basically, the other problem is, so a lot of homeowners will call plumbing company. Hey, my sinks aren't draining quickly. My toilets you know, aren't draining very well. And then, so this, the plumbing company, a lot of them don't have cameras. And what they do is their go-to is just to auger it. And when you auger Orangeburg, you just tear it apart. It's just like this deteriorated, torn apart cardboard pipe. That's a sewer backup waiting to happen. So, and then for repairs, the worst repair would be if you have a really long backyard and it's going, say you have a detached garage in the back and it's going underneath that garage. So then they have to auger, like they have to go from one end to the other and they have to send new pipe through and, if you're buying in that era, get the video scope done. It's worth its money in gold, right? Should you buy an older house then or not? I would. Oh, yeah, I would. So I was in the 59 house before this one. This one I'm in right now is an 80s house. And I like the old properties myself. You have the larger lots. Generally, it's a bit more private, the bigger trees. So I like the old properties, but you just have to do your due diligence when you're uh, looking at them. Make sure you get the sewer line video scoped or I wouldn't buy it. Do you find the quality of building on an older house is higher or? <laughs> so the 80s was boom time in Calgary. In my 80s house here, there's walls that are not square and level and like floors that are like, oh, why does this have a slope? But it's yeah. like there was a time, even though I like the 80s houses because they're generally a little bit bigger, floor plans are a bit unique, right? But the quality varies depending on were we in a boom or were we kind of, you know, in a bit of a recession, I think. Would you buy a grow up? Former no, grow up? No. How about grow, like a marijuana operation? Would you buy that? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't like to always like just answer like black and white because 
I mean, if it was a former grow up and it was remediated and it was a crazy good price, maybe I would buy it, right? But if I have other options, if I'm like, okay, they're not dropping the price very much and there's always going to be a stigma that will be with that house, even if it was properly remediated, if you were buying it as an owner to rent out, right, to a tenant, as soon as that tenant moves in, the neighbors are going to say, did you know that house used to be a grow up? So that stigma will be with that property for the rest of its life. All the neighbors know and they will share to every person you ever put in that property. And so it could be harder to rent out, even if it's been remediated correctly, right? So We've had some in our neighborhood too, where we've seen the yellow tape in the fence that says that it was a farmer grow up. They just ended up just yeah. destroying the whole thing because they went, couldn't, couldn't fix we, it. We went by one day and the house was no longer there. It was just crazy. It's unfortunate, but in order to lose the stigma, you almost have to go down to the foundation, yeah. right? Because... Even with a full remediation, that name will still be on that property. And it could be banks generally won't touch it because a bank wants low risk investments, right? They want a good return on their money and they know there's going to be limited amount of buyers willing to step up to buy that property. So that's why they're going to be harder to finance. Because if the bank says, hey, if one day that you don't make your payments and I now own this property, and have to sell it. I have a limited buyer pool to sell this property to. So generally they won't touch it either. Yeah. And I guess the grow up, that record is on title, isn't it? Yeah, it'll stick with it. Yeah, yeah, it stays with it. I tried to look, I was doing some research. I was trying to find, is there a database that I could find? And I honestly couldn't find one online. There might be one out there, but I searched and I couldn't find one where I could find that information. I would be curious to see if it's on title or not. I've never actually looked at that. There's evidence. I've been in them. If the basement's not developed, there's some telltale signs that you're in one. If you're walking in an undeveloped basement, and a lot of times they're not going to take the time to cover the tracks really well. Yeah. But if you see staples like just over and over again in the joists, what that is, is because they've hung vapor barrier, like in different rooms, right? So we've got a big open basement, but then there's vapor barrier kind of separate it for different, I guess the plants growing at different stages. And all they do is they just staple it on literally hundreds of times. And then there's probably residual staples still in there. There's holes in those, like, and that's a visual sign of an undeveloped basement that there was a grow up. Any tampering with the panel, that's another big one, right? right. So, yeah, in behind where they... And moisture buildup is another big one, too. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we're going to push forward. So if you're not supposed okay. to buy a grow-up house, <laughs> or, or only if it's a smoking hot deal, <laughs> right. what would you recommend for a first-time homebuyer? For this one, I speak to back when I was doing inspecting, like, you know, when you get into, like, the century home, so, like, a 100-year-old house, and then the foundation was built with maybe rock and some concrete or something, like... I would shy away from houses that need a lot of work unless you have the financing. So I remember this one quite well. This young couple, it was in Inglewood, not maybe a 120-year-old house, needed a ton of work, first-time home buyers. And I'm thinking, you are not the match for this house. But they were both doctors. I think he was a surgeon and she's a doctor. So, I mean, they, they have the financing or capability to deal with whatever comes their way, Right. Either you have to be super handy and understand what you're buying and be able to fix it yourself or have a budget uh, to take care of those things that come along. If not, if you don't want to be dealing with that stuff, then I would recommend a newer build for a new home buyer. And then they could kind of just progress and learn as they go. It's just a bit of a safer property. And then there's the other thing too, is the renovation can take a long time. And having lived through a couple of renovations while I've been living <laughs> in the house, I can quite honestly say it's demoralizing and it's exhausting. Yeah, you know, you're, you're going to work and then you're cleaning your house before you can actually cook and then you have to clean it again afterwards you have to put sheets up and stuff so i mean ask yourself if you are a first-time home buyer if that's how you want to live your life 
That's right. And it can put stress on your relationship too, right? Like divorce fest. That's right. Yeah. If you don't have the right dynamic for the relationship to handle it, it could be a disaster. Right. So it works for two partners that are, hey, we're both going to tackle this and this is what and we don't have kids. <laughs> Those kind of people, like it can work, but for the rest of us that are getting pulled every direction, it could be pretty stressful. Yeah. And then having maybe one functional sink maybe one functional toilet on a different floor and then you have to walk over holes in the floor, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, they always make it look in um, in those home renovation shows to be very romantic and fun. And I'm like, oh, God. Of course, <laughs> it only takes like an hour on TV, but <laughs> that, that's right. three years of your life or five years of your life, every day you're coming back to it. It's not so fun and romantic anymore. No, I've, I've done a lot of live-in rentals and I'm kind of sick of them, to be honest with you. Yeah. I, 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 re- I have every tool imaginable to fix almost anything, but I can also procrastinate about it too. I can push something to like <laughs> 90, 95% and then leave it. Unless if someone, like if my partner is not like, hey, you know, this is driving me nuts. <laughs> yeah. I have to take that into consideration. So what kind of properties are your investor clients looking for in Calgary then? Is there sort of a general... So I know, like I've talked to people on my podcast, I've talked to people from like Red Deer to Medicine Hat, Lethbridge, Edmonton, and every municipality, every city views secondary suites differently and mm-hmm. how they handle them, what they require. A lot of them, there's similarities in the building code, fire code, but then Calgary is unique in that if the suite has existed before 2018, they're not as restrictive as afterwards, right? So if it's after 2018, they want the separate furnace and they want the heat system separated. Some of the other stuff would all say the same. You'd have to have egress windows, separate entrance, all that kind of stuff would say the same. Drywalled ceilings, right? So the fire barrier. But it's really that second furnace. And so as an investor, if you pick up a property and the city will not let you legalize it, it can be tricky. If they say basically, oh, you need a second furnace, then you call the furnace guy in. They're likely going to look at the furnace that's there and they're going to say that's too big. You can't just keep the old furnace and put in a new one for the basement. You actually need two brand new furnaces because the old ones is too big for the upstairs, right? So if the ceiling was finished, you got to tear it all apart. You got to put in new ductwork. So it's twenty, thirty thousand dollars later, you've got a second furnace and a separate heating system. So most investors are looking for pre two thousand eighteen that they can get legalized for fairly cheap. Is a really strategic property to buy. And that way, so if everything's pretty much done, it was before 2018, maybe it's five to $10,000 to push it over the line to get it recognized as a legal suite. And then when you go to get financing, the banks will recognize it as well. If it was a short-term rental, Airbnb, they're not going to allow an illegal suite to be rented. So there's a few reasons why you'd want it legalized, right? The other thing that's worth mentioning is parking Mm. when it comes to legalizing suites. Parking's huge. Yeah. If you don't have the parking, that's the other one that you could get hung up on. Yeah. Having enough parking, the city will allow you to legalize it. So something yeah. that came up, we had another speaker, Felix Sportsman. What he does is he takes houses that have two suites and then he'll take the garage and he'll turn it into a third suite. So you don't have the footprint of the building, but then now you've got another source of revenue. But is he doing that have, in Calgary? Where is he doing that? He's doing it in Ontario. Ontario. Okay. Yeah. I don't see it in Calgary. We don't see that a lot, like the carriage house garden suite because of the cost. So generally, if you're going to buy a garden suite, let someone else build it and buy it when they sell it. Because it's <laughs> like as from an investment standpoint, it's only going to add about a hundred, maybe hundred and twenty, thirty thousand dollars to the overall value of the property. But they just spent probably two fifty to three hundred thousand building that thing, right? 
So it only makes sense to build if maybe driven because, hey, maybe you want your family really close and you got some sort of reason. But from a purely investment standpoint, like return on investment, they're not strategic in Calgary anyway to be going around and doing that just because of the cost. The house that I live in, this Calgary house, had a, an illegal suite and it wasn't zoned for legal suites. And then they changed the zoning and then they were trying to grandfather suites in, legalizing suites. And so we already had egress windows. We already had a separate entrance. We just had to do three things. We had to get a sprinkler system in the furnace room, wired smoke alarm system throughout the house, and then we had to drywall under the stairs to create a fire barrier. So it only cost us $2,500 yep. to get suite legalized. So that was great. That's however, fantastic. However, other cities are not like that. You know, no. you could be spending twenty to forty thousand dollars to legalize your suite because you know they're very anal about every single building code and they won't let you bypass anything. You have to follow the letter of the law. So we got lucky in Calgary. So you're right about the sprinkler head. They recently, just 2023, they changed that so that they're not allowing the sprinkler head now to oh. be considered in the furnace room. So a few investors have kind of got a little bit burned on it because if you look at the furnace room, it looks like a very small section to basically the drywall. But like if you can't get behind the furnace, maybe the, the hot water tank's there and you can't get in behind, they've actually had to take walls down to drywall the ceiling, right? So you oh, no. open up drywall. So there's been five to $8,000 worth of work. And then you got the pipe and the electrical, yeah. all that stuff there. So you've got to try to like work around. It's quite a pain and it can add like the sprinkler head is, to my knowledge, is no longer allowed. And that was because it wouldn't stop the smoke from transferring. Like, so, yeah, it could be spraying on a fire and you're getting lots of smoke, but that smoke can still transfer through. And they didn't want that. I think that was the reason. Oh, boy. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so if you didn't... Uh... If you didn't jump when you had the chance, it might be too late now. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think and it was a furnace room. Like the, we, the furnace room we have, there's just no way that we could have drywalled around it. There's just pipes everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I was talking to an insulation guy. I'd have to get confirmation from the city, but it was at a garden show. And he, he said that they have a fire resistant, you know, spray foam that would be sufficient. And I'm like, oh, is that interesting? I said, the city would allow that. And he said, yeah. So that could be a great workaround if they do recognize mm -hmm. that. Yeah, Just to go in, and go in and spray everything. All right. Can you give us a quick Calgary market update? I think universally inventory is low and buyers are kind of almost sitting on the fence now looking for a bargain more than before, right? Obviously we had a crazy year last year in the spring where, you know, it was like a fast moving train. People were dropping conditions and overspending in a lot of ways but inventory is very low and then i think we're going to get a bit of a spring market uh, one thing that's buffering calgary and alberta actually universally is the net migration numbers are strong for alberta right so we've got people coming from bc and from ontario and they just see the value here mm -hmm. so that helps us that's benefiting us but i guess as a market update i think we'll see a bit of a spring market Interest rates, they went up another quarter percent. I kind of feel like this is kind of going to be the new norm. We're just all kind of adjusting now. Like the free money and the low, super low interest rates, we probably aren't going to see that anytime soon again, like unless there's something, you know, like COVID hit and, you know, we don't, that unknown that we're not aware of that's going to happen. I feel that that was an anomaly anyway, and this is actually the old normal. <laughs> yeah, 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 true, right? Because the free money... Free money was just not good for anybody when they just print money like that. Although I would like to have some free money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. I have to store it in my asbestos attic. <laughs> Can I just jump back to one question that we skipped over, which we had mentioned, and that's Poly B. Oh, yeah. Uh, 
Okay, for Poly B, known as Gray Pipe, used about 20 years from like about, I want to say 78 to 98 is kind of that range. They installed it differently in the U.S. There was a huge class action lawsuit that basically, you know, in the U.S., in the deep south, they don't have to worry about winter. So they would run their Poly B through the attic space. And the attic space, as we know, gets really hot. So that was making it more brittle. If you bend Poly B, so if the installers were putting like tight bends on it, that bend could actually uh, over time start to leak, right? I know insurance, they were okay with it before and they've changed and kind of even Canada and they just, you know, they basically want to hear a story as to how you're going to remove it one day. And I think you're going to pay a premium for it. I personally would buy a house with Poly B. That's something I would buy, but I would have a plan. If I'm doing a rental, I would build it into my rental. I would have some sort of plan. If my basement wasn't done and you could see all the Poly B, then I would just make sure before I did the basement, I would rip it all out or just cut it, cut it, remove it, and then just have new PEX installed, have a better product, right? My um, sister had Poly B in her house in Edmonton and they had to have... get it all removed. Yeah, that was two years ago. They had to rip all the walls out. and. Did she have a leak? No, I don't think they had a leak, but there was some sort of concern. I don't know if they had an inspection or something, but there was a concern. And so they did have to remove all of it and put new stuff in. Like plumbers, so you, as soon as you search it on Google, again, there's an incentive for them to give you a quote for ten dollars or $15,000 to have it removed. I don't know. I just, I have seen it where it does have a little pinhole leak and it is leaking. I would have a plan to remove it, but I just, I'm not as scared of it as maybe like, it's kind of like if you search about traveling to South America, all the horror stories show up on the first page, right? But you could go there and have a beautiful, amazing trip. And it's kind of like Poly B, you know, a lot of people have had it for 20 years and haven't had any problems, Yeah. but there's people that have had problems. So we do have a question from a Facebook user. It says, any updates on new construction properties as far as pricing? That's a good question. I think prices have kind of leveled out. But you obviously, we had a big increase because of the construction costs, right? Material. I think the delays in getting material, like I have a friend that was just flipping a property and his property, because he went with the black trim on the outside, the windows were delayed by like almost three months just to get mm. these windows, right? But on the new construction, I don't deal with it a lot. I know I wouldn't buy a new construction property with an escalation clause because you as a buyer could just be screwed, you know, where you buy it. Okay. We'll sell you this property for 700,000 and then they run into problems and, you know, it costs 800,000. They just pass that on to the buyer. I would not touch that property. I would want to basically, this is my price and this is what I buy it for kind of thing. But that's all I can think of for new properties. And you guys have anything? My instinct is you're going to get cheaper trades with higher interest, but uh, you don't control the cost of the product. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what kind of things do you do outside of real estate? <laughs> I don't like to sit still. I don't know, so. that was kind of a weird little laugh there, Corey. I, don't, you know, are... <laughs> <laughs> I like doing like dirt biking, uh, backcountry camping, that kind of stuff, kayaking. I used to have a small jet boat and I would take my kids camping on the rivers and I ended up selling it. And now we just go kayaking and maybe paddleboarding, that kind of stuff on the rivers. But anything with nature, being outside is probably where I like to go. When I have some downtime, yeah. All right. The final question that I have is, what's the best way for people to get in touch with you? <laughs> so my website's just Corey, C-O-R-E-Y, and then Peckford. So P-E-C-K-F-O-R-D. CoreyPeckford.com is my uh, website. And then my number is 587-893-2272 for my phone number. I'm on YouTube. I'm on Instagram, TikTok basically almost everything. I was more active posting before and lately I've been pretty busy. So I haven't been as active, but I try to, I do try to 
create content that's you know people can learn from. Corey has a podcast as well. By the way, I'll post his right. his website in the backlink in YouTube so that you can get in touch with him if you need a home inspector or a real estate agent. Well, I don't, I don't do the inspections anymore, but uh, you yeah. can refer but the business though, can't you? You bet. Yeah. Okay. And thank you for plugging my podcast. It's called the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. And I try to interview people in Alberta. Sometimes we, you know, talk to people outside of Alberta as well, but always on some sort of real estate investing topic. That's right. I've heard that you've had some really illustrious guests. <laughs> that's right. I'm on Corey's show. That's why I, you know, like to do that. <laughs> that's I right. have another message from our Facebook user. Says, I didn't recognize Gil. I'm not sure why they would say that, but uh, <laughs> catch up uh, soon, Nelda. So somebody would like to catch up soon. And their final word is great podcast, which I think you guys did a fantastic job too. Lots okay. of good information. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Yeah, so thank you, everybody, for watching. I'm going to share this on YouTube under Alberta Landlords Watch. And if you liked it, please subscribe and please share it. And tell all your friends. And don't forget to buy your Canadian Landlord's Handbook at <laughs> Amazon.ca because really this should be in every landlord's arsenal. Definitely. Okay. All right. So thank you very much, Gil. Donker's good for joining us. And a special thank you to Corey Peckford who gave us a ton of excellent information about everything to do with homes. So thank you so much for joining us and for the generosity of all of your information. Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks again for listening to the Calgary Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Peckford. I'm an investment-focused real estate agent in Calgary, Alberta. I'm also an entrepreneur, Red Seal electrician, and I hold a Master Home Inspection Certification. If you're thinking about investing in the Calgary area, please reach out and let me put my real estate expertise to work for you. I can be reached at 587-893-2272. Follow me on Instagram at PeckfordCorey, or my website is CoreyPeckford.com. Plus, we have a Facebook group. It's Calgary Real Estate Investing Group, so Craig for short. Please follow that. If you're getting great value from this podcast, please subscribe and leave a five-star review. That would be greatly appreciated. Thanks. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.